Welcome to the inaugural episode of the Digital Fabrication Experiment, a podcast about all things CNC. I'm Winston Moy, and I'm joined by my esteemed co-host, Eddie Kramer. We're hobby machinists, and we'd like to bring you into our conversation about life in the shop and topics in making. So, Eddie, how's it going? Very good, buddy. How you been? I uh, can't complain. Busy. Out of the shop, which gets me all anxious, but life's okay right now. That's good to hear. Yeah, I've, uh, my machines have been quiet all week, too. Kind of work's been intruding into my evening time a bit. Isn't that so annoying? So, Eddie, I don't actually know a lot about you. What is it that you do for your day job? So I'm an enterprise architect at a privately held Texas retailer. Uh, so it's basically software development, corporate enterprise application development in-house for this company. It's all uh, bits and bytes. You really don't get to play around with anything mechanical in, in that job. So how did, how did you sort of get into CNC? Because that seems like a little bit of a jump. Ever since I was you know young guy, I was kind of into cars and mechanics as a teenager. And then um, got involved in computers and kind of put all that mechanical and dirty hand stuff aside for a, for a while, uh, but never really lost my interest in it. So uh, just a few years ago, I think uh, 2014, let me back up a little bit. I didn't really want the kind of the manual workshop in the garage like a lot of my friends at work had. I love the stuff they made, but it just, I don't think I had the skill for that. Um, so 3D printing looked like it kind of an easy way to enter into the think of something and make it side of, uh, you know, hobby experiences, I guess. Yeah, I get you. I sort of started the same way. Oddly enough, like my first foray into CNC was also 2014. I went to grad school in Michigan. I had a uh, one bedroom studio and um, my, my shop consisted of a folding plastic table in the living room. During that time when I was trapped in Michigan, like with the snow and all that, I got the itch to make stuff and I didn't have a lot of tools. And like the first tool that I bought for myself was like a power drill and a Dremel. But beyond that, I didn't really have any means to create stuff. And I knew I didn't have the skills to um, really get into like traditional woodworking. So I just jumped into how can I make stuff if I can think about it. And as a mechanical engineer, I was like, I know about this technology called CNC. Let me do some research. Perfect. I'm going to have a robot do all of my stuff for me. And uh, that's sort of how I rolled into it. I think you and I have probably similar earlier history. You know, I was, uh, when I first started university, I went in as a mechanical engineer, ran, you know, took some computer classes and that's kind of what got me in touch with, uh, you know, computers and writing software. And I very quickly switched gears and focused on that. I kind of always kept this funky hobby of modeling. So I used to, you know, I didn't have CAD software, so I used the CGI special effects type software. I don't know if you've heard of it, New Tech Lightwave, but I used to use it as my CAD and uh, ray tracing software. And I just create what I would consider like mechanical models. I wasn't really, I'm no good at like organic modeling faces or anything like that, but I'd make, I'd make like bike parts and car parts and just stuff like that, model it, um, render it and try to get it looking plausible from an engineering perspective. Yeah. Yeah. I played around with stuff like that, too, back in the day in high school. It, it's tough when you're not using parametric software. Oh, yeah. I didn't even know what that was until... Actually, not even when I had the 3D printer, I was still using um, you know, CGI software to create the model. There was like a plug-in that would spit out STLs. And, you know, man, I thought that was a pretty amazing to be able to just take all the stuff I'd kind of built up over the years and scale it so it actually fit on the printer and print it out and be holding it in my hands, you know, a couple hours later or more like seven hours later. That was pretty cool. That, that was an interesting experience. Yeah. How'd you make the switch into uh, kind of the CNC driven shop? 
to answer that, I think we got to go back into some of my the the people I looked up to as a, a budding maker. Um, one of them was like Bob Claggett, but also York Sprav, um, German guy makes like crazy plywood slingshot contraptions in Germany, and um, a lot of his designs like he would lay out plans for them. You could print them out, put them on a template, and you could follow that with a saw and cut out his creations. And as an engineer, I was thinking like, how can I improve on that? And through CAD, through digital fabrication, I had a means to sort of recreate what he was doing, um, put my own twist on it, and produce something that was a much higher quality than what I could do by hand. That's how I looked at like traditional making, like making stuff with your hands, and then putting a CNC twist on it. Being able to see like, all right, this is what he can accomplish by hand, and then being able to sort of just iteratively improve on that through design and just by thinking about it over and over again, and just watching videos, seeing where mechanisms can be improved. I really found uh, that CNC was a, a way to sort of liberate my creativity. You know, CNC for me was for the lack of handworking talent that I had. You know, I was never going to approach the kind of stuff I was seeing on Instagram, especially woodworkers, right? Most of the metalworking folks that I follow, they're all doing, you know, they're doing more manufacturing, but the, the woodworkers, you know, those are more artistic uh, endeavors for the most part. I mean, even the functional stuff they build is just beautiful. Yeah. No, I'm talking about the ones that are, you know, doing it all with hand tools or power tools, but not CNC controlled mills or anything like that. I quickly found out that I can't really cut a super straight line with a jigsaw. The CNC was basically the only way I could cut something to the quality that I envisioned in my head. Yeah, that's funny. I mean, my problem's even more fundamental than that. I can't even draw a straight line. <laughs> so thank God for CAD. I, I wouldn't be doing this if it wasn't for something like uh, Autodesk Fusion or, or some, you know, it had to be some sort of affordable package to, to kind of keep me interested in this. Mm-hmm. If I had to like do a drawing and then do a template by hand, I, I think I'd be very unsatisfied with the results. Even if I had the skill to operate the hand tools or or the you know typical garage power tools without the assistance of CAD and all the the math and the checking that it does, I would probably would have quickly grown frustrated and and moved on to something some other hobby. Yeah. So, are you self-taught in Fusion three hundred and sixty? Yes. When I mentioned the 3D printer, I had, I had been doing the ray tracing stuff for um, probably since high school, way back in the Amiga days, so that far back. That was kind of the same core skill set you need for the modeling side of CAD. It was really just all direct modeling. So when I switched over to Fusion, I felt pretty comfortable with the concepts of modeling in CAD. Uh, the parametric stuff was something that I was actually, after... F- understanding what it was i realized i'd actually even been trying to do that in new tech using they have some formula driven dimensions and stuff like that where you could just put it in a table it wasn't really full parametric but you could make adjustable designs you know make a tweak in a number and the whole model would update the power of parametric was kind of eye-opening to me i love it well when i say self-taught it's internet youtube taught right yeah so (laughs) So i learned from uh yeah all the good material that's out there the autodesk and Actually, the, the machine tool manufacturers, you know, Carbide and Bantam and those guys put out there and, and individuals like Lars, you know, that stuff, that's kind of where I went from poking around to actually uh, having some skill in the, in the package. You mentioned you had a mechanical engineering degree. Did they prep you for this? So in my undergrad, they taught us Creo. When I went to grad school, they used SolidWorks there. When I went to work for the Navy, they primarily used Creo there. 
But one of the other branches that I did a rotation in, they used Inventor. So that was my first foray into an Autodesk product. Um, they used to teach uh, AutoCAD at my high school, but I never really got into that. I was trained in Creo. I picked up SolidWorks on my own. I picked up Inventor on my own. And um, during that rotation, when I used Inventor, they were integrating it with HSM. So that was sort of my first foray into like industrial grade CAM. And at that point in time, that was when I was still using the Shape Oco 2. They sort of just threw me in head first. They were like, hey, here's a part. I want you to program it for the Haas Mini Mill. That was sort of just my first look at the workflow for like pick the material, you pick your cutter, step through the different tabs in um, the CAM software select your contours to pick your machining boundaries. And I did that once. And I didn't touch it again a year or two. And then I think at the end of 2015, someone convinced me to um, try out a Fusion 360. And so I, I sort of just poked around in there. It was visually jarring to step back to an interface that had fewer buttons. Um, but I, I picked it up pretty quick just because of my background. And from there, it's it's been, I guess, love at first sight. I think, you know, with Fusion, I, I first got into it when, you know, I had the 3D printer. I only, I probably had that about mm, almost a year, you know, had a lot of fun with it, but found myself getting pretty bored with, you can make anything as long as it's plastic. So uh, I really wanted to kind of take that same workflow and apply it towards other materials. Um, particularly, I was interested in doing some work in aluminum, non-ferrous metals, small, I don't want to say jewelry, but, you know, small, small stuff. I didn't really know how to do that. You know, I was looking at, there's 3D printer technology. It was the ones that would print in metal, very expensive, the laser. Uh, Selective laser centering. Yeah, so, I, you know, I was kind of, I was following the rabbit hole down all the th various 3D printing technologies, and, and none of the other ones other than FDM had any, except for the, or at least none of the ones that would print in something other than plastic were destined for consumer pricing anytime soon, so... Um, yeah, I think in, in that process, um, I ran across the other mill. And I didn't really know anything about milling machines. The link took me to their Kickstarter video, and I watched that. And there were some other videos, and it's like funky little white box is cutting printed circuit boards, milling wood, cutting pieces out of aluminum, engraving it. And I'm like, oh, man, that's exactly what I want to be able to do. Did some looking around, found out it was actually a you know, pretty affordable machine. Took my second 3d printer budget and applied it towards the now bantam tools other mill and next thing i know uh you know this thing's showing up at my house and i'm trying to figure out how to use it you know they, they have pretty good software for doing uh 2d svg they would automatically convert it in their software you could do all kinds of prismatic stuff and I, that kind of got me by for a month as i was learning the machine i wanted to do some stuff that was really more 3d and they had the coupon in there for fusion 360 free one year and that's when I first downloaded it and started playing around with the the part that's really different between 3D printing and mills, which is CAM, right? So that that was where my learning curve on this stuff was really on the CAM side. That was all brand new to me. Broke a few end mills, <laughs> learning how to do that. But it, it was, you know, it was a game changer. My actually my 3D printer went back into the closet for the next two years as I learned how to use the, uh, the other mill. And uh, eventually I added the carbide 3D. Nomad 883, mainly because I wanted a little bit bigger build area. Kind of had those two machines for quite a while, just cranking out all kinds of stuff, even some little parts that I would sell here and there. 
the most recent acquisition was the five axis pocket in C, which I'm still, I consider myself learning, not yet mastered uh, on that machine. I feel like it's very hard to, to reach a level of mastery with five axis, but we'll get there eventually. Like what I found most useful out of it so far is the three plus two, you know, the indexed fourth and fifth axis. Um, that's actually been real easy to use, really, you know, real easy to kind of just step up from three axis into uh, parts that, you know, where I can kind of do something on the sidewall of the part that was not easy to do before. I'm using that a lot. Um, I think that I'll get into simultaneous five axis through finishing strategies first and eventually get to the point where I'm comfortable, you know, actually using that for roughing and, and uh, some of the other more aggressive toolpaths. You just have to dive in headfirst, really. That's how I did it. I, I found an excuse to use Flow, and uh, it worked really well. I was pleasantly surprised by it. Yeah, I saw some pictures that you posted. So tell me more about that project. That was that looked like a pretty big chunk of wood you had on that machine. It was. It's a Bluetooth speaker enclosure that I made, and it's it's got sort of a, a smart speaker uh, shape to it so it's sort of egg-shaped and it's hollowed out and uh, you stick the speaker in the little control unit in the top so i got the kit from rockler and i was like how can i how can i make a cool enclosure for it because most people they just um they make like a, a little box they stack some plywood hollow it out cut a circle in the front stick in the speaker cut a circle in the back stick the control unit in the back i didn't want to do something simple nothing i could pull off on a three-axis machine would really be in my mind worthy of this enclosure idea that I had. And so I started modeling out this egg shape using like revolves and just projected cuts. In the back of my head, I was thinking like, all right, how can I machine these features that I'm making? I can use three plus two for some of these cuts. But to finish the outside, the egg-shaped shell, it had to be a multi-axis toolpath. Because I had that excuse to try it, I just, I dropped a flow toolpath on it and it worked really really well and the the footage when i stuck a gopro on the pocket nc is really interesting because you can see the the continuous rotation of the part as it's being machined come up with an excuse to use it it's really fun just have to play around with the parameters a little tool orientation to make sure you get it right in terms of complexity to use it's no different than any other toolpath yeah that complex curve you had on the outer part of the enclosure i I don't think there would have been any other way to do that you could technically do it on a four axis, but to do it right, I think you need that continuous rotation so that you're making optimal contact with the end mill. Yeah, I mean, I can't see any any tool paths or seams, uh, at least in the pictures. And I think you said you did a little minimal sanding on it. Yeah, so my, my step over on the flow tool path was one degree. It would rotate one degree every single time it made a vertical pass. It's not quite fine enough that like it's super smooth just off the machine. So I had to do a little hand sanding to sand that out. Because of the the speed of the pocket NC, I didn't really want to make my resolution any finer because it's got a 60 inch per minute travel speed. To make double the amount of passes would have like added an extra like half hour, 45 minutes to the the flow operation. So your speaker's all ready to be able to play back this podcast to test it out, right? Yeah, it would be the perfect use for it. Um, I haven't actually tested it in its intended environment, which is my bathroom yet, just because I... I'm not satisfied with the amount of uh, finish that I put on it. Um, I want a good solid coat of polyurethane on it to make sure it's uh, moisture resistant, humidity resistant. I built the speaker because I wanted to listen to podcasts in my bathroom and I can't hear it if I put my phone on the counter. The sound from a phone is usually really tinny 
and from the sound of uh, water, it gets drowned out. So I usually either have to bring my phone into the shower with me, which is kind of risky, or play it back on something louder, like a Bluetooth speaker. I'll, I'll test it probably in the next week after the uh, polyurethane fully cures. First world problems. Yep. I mentioned the shop's been kind of quiet this week. After I swore I wouldn't make any more for a long time, I actually started another batch of fidget spinners. You probably heard Mikey the Maker on the uh, If You Build It podcast asked for one, so I told him I'd make him one and had some friends that want some more. Actually, one's a, I would call it like a warranty repair. The first few batches I made, uh, I was using just steel bearings. A while back, I'd switched to ceramic, but uh, some of the early, like the steel ones, they're coming back because they, uh, I don't know if they're getting rusted or pitted or whatever, they don't really hold up in the pocket too well. There were friends at work, you know, that bought some. They'll get the latest. The uh, the bearings aren't drop-in replacement? I use a Loctite bearing epoxy. These bearings are so small, they're, um, I think, R188. They'll get destroyed if I try to knock them out. It's easier just to redo the main body, put all the parts back on it. It took, there was a lot of trial and error to get that little bearing in there without binding it. You're supposed to do a press fit. Uh, I just do interpolated holes. I don't do any kind of boring or reaming on the on the bearing hole. It makes more sense to make it barely touching the sides and then use this uh, magic epoxy that kind of locks it in place. Well, you said the bearings were steel. Could you actually just machine out the bearing? Uh, they're hardened steel, so oh. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to try that on my little desktop CNCs. Uh, I could definitely knock them out. I mean, the bearing will get destroyed but I could potentially reuse the body. You know, it's aluminum. I've knocked them out on my prototype. It does mar the surface. They're really pretty thin. The The spinner body's an eighth of an inch, 6061. Oh, wow. The body's really light. It won't take a lot of pounding. It'll bend the arms on it, basically, even if I have it like sitting in a little jig. The body's pretty easy to make. You've probably seen some pictures on my Instagram. I do like a batch of eight on the Nomad. I'd sold the last batch late last year. Spinners had run their course, and I was kind of tired of making them. I, I enjoyed doing it for a while. That was kind of my learning project to push myself on getting better at Fusion 360 and some of the tool paths, especially the adaptive clearing. I kind of that was my first real uh, opportunity to push adaptive clearing hard on the little machines. Yeah, no, that's a good use for it because um, you can't really make iterative improvements on a one-off project. It's kind of nice to have a project that you can sort of sink your teeth into for a prolonged period of time. This one was really good. Since I was doing batch stuff, some of the Nomad jobs would be, originally it was 16 hours to do eight bodies in aluminum in one batch. And then I did a lot of improvements on the tool pass. I think now I can do it just under eight hours to get the 10 parts machined on both sides and, and out of the machine and ready to go. That's about it. I have some prototyping work that came my way on the pocket and seed that's going to be five axis, maybe five axis, definitely three plus two. I might use simultaneous five axis for a couple of uh, the operations. Still kind of assessing the model to see what tools I need. It's a really small part. Can't really say who it's for or what it is yet. A dime would hold this part and probably half of a second one pretty easily. Wow. And it has features on all sides. It's a part of a gear train, I would say, but it's got some features on each face in addition to the, the gear teeth. Is work holding going to be a challenge? It will and it won't. Right now, it's looking like, you know, I can do it one setup on the five axis machine, which will make work holding really easy, right? I can kind of get to everything I need. I'll just have to tab around the gear teeth without affecting the geometry of the gear teeth. That's going to be my strategy for that. Hoping that's going to work. Otherwise, I will have to do kind of a, a two-sided, um, potentially with the re another setup. Uh, still just kind of mocking up the cam. Let's see if the strategy is going to work. Yeah, I should know. But hopefully by the next time we do the podcast, I'll have a success or failure story for you about that part and some pictures. Yeah, I got a couple other things. I, I recently got a Shea Bucko S3. 
at Ford Everett Carbide 3D very generously set me up with one of those. I have yet to actually cut a real part on it because my shop's all indoors in my spare bedroom at home. It's too hot in the garage in Texas to really set up a, a shop out there. Yeah. You know, they're desktop machines. Up until I had the, the Shapebrick OS 3, there was no problem just kind of extending my desk and putting the little machines on there. And, and they're quiet. I run them in here, no problem. They'll have full enclosures, so the mess is minimal. The Shapebrick is a little different story for me. It comes without an enclosure. I'm going to run it in the garage. I decide, now let's go ahead and set this up in, in my existing workshop. It's going to need full enclosure. And I've kind of spent this week uh, infusion modeling out the enclosure. Got the 8020 order in. In a week or two, I'll have it fully enclosed and making parts inside the house. I don't think it's going to be too loud for the kind of work I do on it, but we'll see. I think once you get started and you start using quarter and trend mills and you start, you, you might get the itch to make something bigger. If you get a good dust collection system on it, it should be all right. The enclosure will also help. I'm sure your significant other would appreciate that. Yeah, she already thinks my, uh, my Nomad's a little loud when it's doing the spinner batches. That may go through a couple of iterations on that enclosure. I'll build it out the way I've got in, you know, in mind now. And if noise is still a problem, I, I've seen some enclosures uh, that have the noise absorption tiles. So I might try that out. We'll just see. Yeah, I think most of the stuff I want to do on it, it's not going to be too bad. Um, actually, the first few projects are going to be Delrin, large, like 12 by 12 inch Delrin plates that I bought for making fixtures for the other machines. And I've always kind of cut that with a handsaw. It takes forever. The saw gets hot, it tends to melt. I always wanted to be able to really machine out the net shape that I want for the fixture. So now with the Shape Oco, it's going to be in fixture making mode for probably two or three weeks. I'm going to just cut a bunch of that stock that I've had forever from eBay into um, basically the right shapes to work on the other mill or the other two machines. I'm going to try to make a round fixture plate that fits on the pocket and C's rotary table. I think that'd be pretty nice. Delrin, you can thread it. It's pretty forgiving if you machine into it. I'm going to probably work on some fixture designs for that. It's not a bad idea. I've been trying to think up some custom work holding ideas for the Pocket NC. Not everything fits in the vise, and not everything can fit in the uh, ER40 collet. You did kind of a unique work holding for the speaker. Tell me a little bit more about that. If you start with a block of wood, you can't really machine like a one inch diameter little nub that you can stick in the ER40 collet because that requires that you hold the piece in a CNC to begin with, and the shape Oko isn't tall enough for that, and you really can't fit a block the height of the speaker enclosure plus the little protrusion that you would work hold onto. So I had to either make a really thin adapter um, that you can just screw onto the piece of wood that would then go onto the pocket NC, or be able to run a bolt into the block of wood and just sort of clamp it that way directly to the B table. And so what I ended up doing was machining this, um, basically a, an aluminum bushing that would get clamped in the pocket NC's ER40 collet. I could run a bolt in from one side, drill a hole in my stock material, thread that, and then bolt into there. I actually ended up using threaded inserts for a little extra work holding strength because threading into wood isn't really the most secure way to do it. For the most part, it was just a single quarter 20 bolt holding my block of wood onto the B table of the pocket NC and hoping it wouldn't come loose or fly off or otherwise break. So I tend to cut with conservative settings just for acoustic reasons and especially if I have to get it right the first time. And with this project, I kind of wanted to get it right the first time just because it was so long and tedious to start over like halfway through it would be hours and hours of work to redo. I took shallow cuts and uh, made sure I wasn't at risk of sort of overwhelming the, the, the friction hold capability of that bolt. 
when I flipped the part over, I actually had a little square recess that would uh, index onto the aluminum bushing. So that added a little more uh, resistance to just spinning off if I uh, hit the uh, block from off center. So did you uh, do anything else that wasn't shop related this week? This past weekend, I was at the Firefly Music Festival in Delaware, listening to a bunch of good music, listening to some not so great music, but really just having a good time day drinking with friends and preparing for my next project, which should be a running metal holder. Um, so I'm an aspiring runner, which means I can sort of maintain a pace slightly faster than walking over a long distance. But I've done a couple 5Ks, a 10K, a half marathon here, there. And so I've got a bunch of race medals that are just sitting around. Um, they're actually on my printer right now looking for a home. And so I want to make a little rack that I could hang these from. And so that's hopefully going to be the next project. Uh, really simple materials, just starting from basically a board foot of pine, but cutting out all the pieces with a CNC since I don't have a table saw or anything like that. I'm sort of just rolling off of my vacation and slowly getting myself ready for the next project and also cleaning up. I, I had the pocket NC just sitting on top of my shape oak over the past couple days. My shop is finally now in a state where I can begin the next project. What about you? Other than the spinners, really been spending the time working on just modeling and things I need to fix around the house that I make on the machine. I think the next project that I'd actually like to be my first project that I fully document for my upcoming YouTube channel is going to be um, this little USB LED desk lamp that I'm playing around with the model at this point. I'm going to work on some refinement of that, probably integrate some electronics. And for the first time, for me, I'm going to actually try to use Autodesk Eagle to do the PCB design. I've used Eagle a few times in the past, but one of my goals for 2018 is uh, master Eagle and basically do all my electronic design in Eagle. Because now that it's integrated pretty well with Fusion, you can bring the printed circuit board over into Fusion once it's done and kind of integrate the mechanical enclosure with the PCB pretty easily. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try that out. See what else and the closure for the shape ago, which is really more hand tools. At least you're starting with 8020. I, I went the two by four route. It took a little more time than I expected just to sit down, and make sure my, my corners were square. If I could do it all again, and if I wasn't so stingy, I would totally go 80-20. Originally, I was trying to hit Vince, you know, Vince Fab on uh, Instagram. I was trying to hit him up for uh, a copy of the enclosure he built for his shape. I was like, hey, you know, if you want to make a second one, because he's a fantastic welder. He just goes right to steel, you know, <laughs> no excuses for him. He just cuts it, creates the whole thing from scratch. So he built this really rugged looking uh, enclosure for his shape. Oko. He's using a, his in a commercial environment. You know, they see pretty heavy duty use compared to what I'd be doing here. Definitely overkill for what I needed, but it looked like it would be awfully quiet. Really heavy wall, steel. I couldn't really tell. I think maybe he had double layers of Lexan in there for the windows. So I was kind of, you know, heading towards paying him to build a second one. But he's pretty busy, and I started thinking about, you know, let me look around and see. So there's there was uh, plenty of them out there, YouTube and some of the project sites. Um, so I, I picked one. Oh, actually, there was um, a couple of Instagram followers actually reached out and sent me pictures of their enclosures that they'd built. And they were both 80-20 designs. And I, li I like them both. So I kind of settled on the really tall one. They'll give me room for a large vacuum and dust collection at the top. So I think I'm going to start with that, see how it works. If I could make one recommendation, make the enclosure tall enough that you can actually lean into it without hitting your head on the uh, top cross brace. Yeah, so it's actually a meter tall. 
So I'll have a probably MDF floor plate to be the base of the case with some small cutouts so that the shape I'll go, I don't know if I'll bolt the shape I'll go to it or just have the leveling feet sit in some pockets on the MDF. I'm actually looking for advice on that. I don't know how much this machine moves around when it's... Uh... It's heavy enough that it doesn't really want to move. Little pockets might help, um, but I wouldn't try and over-constrain it. My original enclosure, I sort of just screwed in a little angle piece of wood on two opposite corners, and that just held it in place just fine. Unless you flip the enclosure upside down, like it's, it's not going to move anywhere. Uh, you just want it to not shift laterally, and uh, just a little block of wood will do that just fine. Yeah, that's a good idea because I was kind of trying to figure out how I get the holes laid out. That would be easier. I just set it in there and block it off with a raised barrier, right, to keep it from. Make sure it's easy to undo. Like, don't glue down that block of wood before you screw it because you might end up wanting to move your shape oko to the front of the enclosure so that you can hang stuff off the front. Yeah, that's a good point. I've, I've never seen a lot of people do that, but knowing you, you might have that need <laughs> at some point in the future. Yeah, my, my current enclosure design, like I was thinking, I've seen folks, JPL Richard's a good example. You know, he runs stock that's much larger, much longer than his Shapeoko. Machine it, then slide it down, index it, four foot board or something like that. Yeah, you just do it in sections. With the enclosure, I wouldn't be able to do that. Big job like that, I'd probably be doing outside anyway. So I don't really need the enclosure. Or you could just put a pass-through slot in the back. Yeah, actually, the way it's set up in my room, I wouldn't have any room. It's up against the wall. That would, yeah, actually, that's not a bad idea because I do take it out in the garage. That would still keep most of the dust in because I could have like a little dust brush. If you split up the back wall, the top half plexi or plywood or whatever you're going to make it, the bottom like six inches is removable. That's probably all you need because you're not going to pass through stock that's more than like three or four inches thick. Yeah, I do that on the Nomad too. Sometimes you just need that extra inch or two on the side or in the front. It's definitely come in handy. I've seen some that have the door that opens, swings over the top like the Nomad does. I like that design, but it's you're looking at probably struts or a spring and some hinge, a little more complicated hinge mechanism. So I, I kind of went with the side opening door. It was easy to do on the 8020. The main thing for me, other than having enough room to put all the accessories in there, I got to be able to clean it. Anything that traps the dust or chips or anything where I can't get to it with the vacuum cleaner. So I have a little shop vac in my workshop. And I just kind of vacuum out the enclosures. If I have to pull the shape, I'll go out to get to that. Don't worry about cleanliness too much. There are, there are going to be parts that are going to be permanently dusty. Plus, if you don't see it, it won't matter. I think you and I have very different people that we follow. Interesting fact I kind of stumbled across as we talked about our backgrounds. The, the gist I got from hearing you talk is that you follow the sort of like the, the hardcore machinist. I cut my teeth on I Like to Make Stuff, David Picciuto, Jimmy DiResta, um, sort of your, your traditional builder slash maker channels. A lot of what I see is like from the woodworking side where the conversation's a lot different. How does CNC like fit into woodworking? Whereas from your side, it's a lot of like CNC is my way of life. Because of that, we're going to be approaching this from interesting directions and where that takes us in this podcast might be a little unique, I'm hoping. And I'm hoping our audience agrees that it's, it's worthwhile to sort of continue that conversation because my goal with my YouTube channel is to sort of get people to realize that A, CNC isn't scary, and B, CNC can be a very valuable part of the design process. And trying to get more people to buy into those ideas is sort of what drives my content and just how I share and how I explain things. What's your take on all this? I'm going to ask you a question first, because this, this comes up a little bit on some of the areas that I follow. So is it your perception among the kind of folks you were talking about, especially the woodworkers, that like CNC is cheating? Or is that kind of, are they over that? A little while back, uh, Jimmy DiResta used the term mind-made versus handmade. And that's what it boils down to. 
you're still exercising your creativity, you may not be using the same manual skills, but the bottom line is you are shaping wood or any other material based on an idea in your head. And as long as there's creativity in the process, I think that's something of value worth sharing and worth celebrating. I, I don't really see a problem with that. Really, you're just, you're using a machine to execute your vision. Like the power saws, right? I've seen all kinds of tools and guides and all kinds of stuff to help you make a straight line, right? Adding machinery or adding useful tools that help you achieve the result you want in the end. In the end, the result's the same, right? You have this very close realization of what you had in your mind coming off your machine, power saw, router, or CNC machine. In the end, they're all tools, right? The way you interact with them might be a little different. The big thing about CNC and the maker community is it opens up these same end results to folks that don't necessarily have the same set of skills, right? I especially see uh, in the maker communities I follow that you know a lot of them are from software or computer background or you know not what I would traditionally call a craftsman background. The software and the and the machines are so approachable now that you could really get over the hurdle of learning fairly easily, start making stuff you're very satisfied with, and the other people potentially might be satisfied with. Yeah, certainly. Um, but one thing I also want to sort of reinforce is that a lot of the people who say like, oh, CNC isn't real making, they might also not fully understand that CNC is also a process where it's not just like you hit a button and it makes a part. There's still a lot of thought and intuition that goes into it. You have to learn how a material moves, how it behaves, if it's going to cut cleanly. It's sort of a good Trojan horse for a lot of steam topics. Like you learn how to control a machine. So that's like your intro into mechatronics. What's cheat code? How do stepper motors work? And then how does a material behave if you cut a part two? thin that's you're learning about material science right there cnc for me has sort of brought me back into like a learning mindset i come into this thinking like what techniques can i use how can i manipulate these materials in new ways and it's made me a lot more interested in like strength of materials and material science than i was even in college it makes it tangible and, and it puts that science that learning like within your grasp and you can do it in a hands-on manner that you just can't do in a textbook to me, digital fabrication is really this whole confluence of technologies, software, tools, robots, not just mills, right? 3D printers, laser engravers, hopefully water jet someday soon. And eventually wire EDM maybe? The complexity has been mastered by companies like Autodesk. The 3D printers, you know, everyone's going to have one in their home. Mom's going to have one in the kitchen. I don't know if that's ever going to happen. And I don't think that's necessarily going to happen with, with CNC milling machines. Although there's actually some of that stuff going on in the world. Datron has five axis milling machines for dental practices. There's typically a, not a machinist running them. It's a dental technician or someone like that spitting out titanium parts. Real simple software, real, you know, very complex machining going on inside this machine, but the care and tending of the machine has basically been turned into something not much more complicated than your typical office printer. Kind of interesting where the companies are going with the technologies. That, that for me is a, a scary idea, just because for me, the, the fun in this is to preserve the creativity that people have to bring into this process. With 3D printers, like five years ago, it was like, oh, everyone's going to have one in their house and like download whatever you want, a showerhead, a, a bookshelf, a car, whatever, and you just print it. I guess that's an important part of making a technology for everyone. But for me, what makes this technology special is that it's an enabler. So it's meant to be an outlet for your creativity. If you look at a CNC as an appliance, that magic is kind of gone. But if everyone has a CNC, I also think that we'd have a lot more people who want to exercise their ability to create things. And so I don't necessarily think, oh, CNC is going to become boring. We'll just enable more makers to come into the community and create new things. Yeah, I agree. I think digital fabrication in general, it's all about creativity multipliers, right? 
bringing uh, what used to be very complex manufacturing technologies into the realm of hobbyists and makers, small business. It's a movement that's in its infancy. I don't think it's going to ever stop having a creative and ad hoc nature. There's always going to be tools for people that want to kind of just come up with something new and make it themselves, right? That seems to be such a part of human nature to want to create and make things yourself. Not for everybody, but there seems to be a part of the population that does enjoy doing that. Even with the hand tools, all kinds of stuff going on. It's probably always been going on, but now with social media, you see it, right? You're in touch with these people a lot more than you ever would have been. It's celebrated even. Exactly. It's a movement. Yeah. So speaking of makers and movements, so tell me about your Maker Fair, West Coast Maker Fair visit. Yeah. So back in May, I had the privilege of being a panelist at the Bay Area Maker Fair on the DIY content creator stage. It's it's an awesome stage to make your debut on for speaking engagements. I've been to Bay Area Maker Fair once before, and my takeaway from that was like, yeah, you can walk around, you can look at the booths, and it's cool and all, but you really don't get a lot out of it unless you engage with the people. Prior to Bay Area, like I went to New York, uh, Maker Fair alone or with a friend or two. And like we'd sort of just window shop, like what's cool, what's the new cool machine. But after you left, that's it. Like your inspiration is sort of just, that's it. And it's gone. But when you start talking with the, the makers and you start networking with people you've looked up to, like I met Bob Claggett at Bay Area Maker Fair 2016. And to sort of just chat with him was really cool. Watching him, you see his ideas, you sort of get a feel for his personality. But when you meet a person... They're a lot more down to earth than you think they would be for being YouTube celebrities. And it makes it relatable. It sort of shows you what your place in the community is. You're more than just a passive audience member. You could sort of contribute to this community as well. I got to meet a lot more makers this year just because I'm slowly clawing my way into that, that circle of elite makers. Being able to bounce ideas off of them super inspirational. So I'll give you an example. I got to sit down at dinner at a table with Punish Props, uh, Bill Duran, Evan and Caitlin, and uh, Laura Kampf. And Evan's just talking about like goofy ideas of, hey, like, wouldn't it be nice if you had a stool that could just deploy from your backpack so you could sit down wherever? And if you were among any other group of people, friends or coworkers, no one would entertain the notion of even thinking about that idea. But when you're in a circle of makers who it's their job to run with creativity they just they start spitballing ideas and it's really cool to be a part of that like brainstorming process being among the people that make up maker fair is a much more rewarding experience than just being a passive audience member and, and just looking at like oh this cool machine or like this is something cool someone made you can actually sort of engage with them and and sort of share in their their creative process and you get a lot more out of that than just going there and, and looking at static displays and so that's that's sort of my takeaway it's it's not the things that make maker fair special it's the people that make maker fair special yeah, it sounds like a really interesting event. I've never been to any maker fairs. I didn't really know what the community was like there. I have a pretty big blind spot as far as the big social media makers out there. I tend to follow more more of the manufacturing side, the instant machinist community that usually, you know, working in a big shop or working at one of the CAD vendors or machine tool builders, working with the industrial VMCs. For some reason, I just love watching what they make on those machines and actually learn a lot of uh, techniques from them that work on the little machines, too. I think the first machining I ever saw on YouTube was Adam Booth. He's a bomb 79 on Instagram. Uh, he's He does some CNC, but he's mostly kind of famous for his uh, manual machining, especially lathe work on really big parts. And, you know, he was posting videos of 
turning this huge steel shaft on his machine at home. I don't know why. I just was flipping through YouTube one time. This was before I even had my 3D printer. And I saw that. He wasn't saying a lot. He was basically just, he'd say, okay, I'm getting ready to do this operation. I'm getting ready to do that operation. Just pure machining video. Next thing I know, I'm watching like three hours of his video over the weekend and not knowing anything about what's going on there. I think that's what kind of got me looking at the machining side of stuff on social media. He talked a lot about um, NYC, CNC, and John Grimsmo. I checked out their stuff. And of course, NYC, CNC had more training-focused videos that happened to be very timely because I was just starting to learn Fusion by then. And uh, I remember seeing on John's site a lot of really great how-to content on CAD and CAM and Fusion. I remember just sitting through hours of that stuff. And a lot of times it was exactly what I was looking for to build some part. John Grimsmo, self-taught, similar to me, never touched a machine tool until he started with the machine in his garage. Pretty prominent CNC knife maker. We, we were talking about the is CNC cheating, so he ran into that, I think, in his community where uh, there were a lot of traditional hand tool-only knife makers that were resistant to CNC knife maker at first. And I think he's kind of helped overcome the disdain towards CNC now. And Yeah, that, that CNC stigma. Yeah, you see a lot more of those knife makers, even the probably the traditional ones have switched over to CNC for some of their operations because it, it makes sense. I mean, even Etsy, right, it considers CNC stuff uh, handmade these days. I know it always weirds me out when I when I try and list a new product and I have to pick, did you make it or did someone else make it? It's quote unquote handmade. It's it's kind of machine made. If you want to call it handmade, we'll we'll go with it. I think it's a mismatch between what the person appreciates about the product or the object versus what went into making it. You may see something that's beautiful. It wasn't just that that person was good with hand tools. It's actually there's a whole lot in the design and selection of materials and knowing how that material is going to behave as you start cutting away at it. That's just as relevant in CNC. I think you know you were talking about material properties and material science uh, comes into play in all this stuff. It's all going from big piece of material to final product. Yes. Are you going to Autodesk University this year? How I get there has yet to be determined, but I'm, there might be a cross-country road trip going on. But we'll we'll talk more about that as that gets closer. Sure. I'm definitely going this year, hoping to get Autodesk to pay for it if I can win one of those Autodesk cam challenges. Yeah, the problem is the competition is pretty stiff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the word is out. It's fun, though. I, I didn't enter last year. I know you did and came out pretty well for the experience. I mean, I got a pocket NC as a consolation prize, so I can't complain. I found going through the library of submissions last year, you know, there's tons of techniques that the, the people that had entered were sharing, especially on some of the finishing strategies. I care a lot about the off the machine finish, you know, so I don't have to do any hand finishing. Real interested in uh, kind of stealing some techniques from some of the contestants. There was all kinds of good takeaways. Even if you don't want to enter the CAM challenge, it's worth following it and taking a look at the results. In that sense, I think the contest is really successful with the community because it encourages people to, to sort of share their secrets. I've definitely picked up a tip or two just by following the entries that people submit and also getting ideas creatively of like, what kind of parts can you make starting from like this simple theme? I had one clear idea when they released the theme this past challenge and seeing where other people took it really sort of blew me away. And so it's it's good to follow just for inspiration. Yeah, there were a lot of creative entries on this last one. This was my first contest, the one I entered a couple of months ago. And my main takeaway was plan more time, <laughs> like three <laughs> times as long as you think it's going to take even for a simple entry. I, I kind of want to get into taking on some third-party prototyping work here, especially on the five-axis machine. Some little projects for model builders or some small, maybe uh, Kickstarter-type projects. 
I design my own parts. I model them. I make them. I find I tend to make parts I can build. There's probably unconscious compromises going on at the modeling phase. I'm probably not pushing myself as hard as I should be. I'm hoping taking on somebody else's model and being faced with a challenge of, okay, now how do you machine this will push me into kind of out of my comfort zone on some of the cam strategies, especially five axis. Having that that impetus of someone else's idea to sort of force you in a new direction, is it can be a, a very enlightening experience. Sometimes you become a better machinist from it, sometimes you get humbled by it, but either way, it's, it's worth doing. The contests are a good way to do that. They're a, a low-risk way to do that. It's, it's much harder when someone's paying you money and you have to deliver. Exactly. Yeah, so I plan on looking for work like that more to keep my skills growing than necessarily to generate income, but uh, income is good too. Care and feeding and new machines, uh, you got to have some source of uh, paying for all that, and I'd love to have the shop be self-funding down the road. Yeah, we'll have to talk about that as a uh, future podcast topic. Yeah, I agree. So, Eddie, uh, one thing I wanted to ask you about, I heard that you were doing a interview with uh, Carbide3D for their Spotlight series. How did that go? Yeah, so uh, last week, Ed Ford actually came down here to my home workshop. He generously provided me with uh, Shapeoko 3. As we were talking about that a few weeks ago, he asked if I'd be interested in appearing on one of their uh, Carbide3D customer spotlights. And I said, sure, I may not have anything going on the Shapeoko by then, but I've got the Nomad and you know the other machines here. I'll, I can definitely uh, have something good going on the, on the machines when you get down here. So he came down with his film crew from Beacon Media, filmed some machining, uh, kind of talked to me about my background, a lot of video footage, um, and he actually spent the whole day here. I thought it was going to be uh, over in four hours, but we actually, we had a lot to cover and gave me lots of good Shape Oko tips. <laughs> that was definitely uh, worth going through uh, the stress of having uh, Ed Ford inspect your machines and your machining skills, right? Um, he's a really great guy, very approachable. Yeah, there's no one better to learn from. Oh, Yeah. Uh, Carbide 3D, Ed, Bantam Tools, and Pocket and C, which is the three companies that you know I own their machines and have interacted with them in the past. And they've all been just really good supporters of the maker community. I think that's part of what makes this stuff successful. Do a lot to evangelize this technology uh, and stand behind the makers, right? So been really helpful, especially on some of the techniques. Um, like a good example of Pocket and C, I wanted to cut stainless steel on there. I really had no idea, never machined anything like stainless steel. Challenging for me. So I was basically just able to call them up and say, hey, is there, or I think I emailed them, is there a good starting point on speeds and feeds so I don't just like blow up my uh, cutting tool the first time it comes in contact? They didn't just give me a suggestion. They actually went off into their lab and ran some uh, some tests. Uh, they went in there and gave me some really dialed in numbers that first time I ran the stuff, it was perfect cut. Carbides like that too, they are all been very helpful, which to me, I think that's a big part of what makes this this movement viable, right? There's been guys that have bought industrial VMCs, used ones, put them in their garage. If you've got the skill and the, the machinist background, that's a great way to go, but you're not going to get the support that you could expect from a more maker-focused company. At the consumer level, they don't win unless you win. So they're really invested in helping you succeed. Yeah, and they're very open. You know, that's the other thing. Bigger uh, industrial machine tool builders, they tend to be very proprietary from what I've picked up from John Saunders when he goes to Emo and stuff. You know, they've got their machines running on demos with like no pictures. You know, you can't take any pictures of the machining going on here. It's very competitive, right, uh, in that space. Or, or they're just maybe more old school and not really social media savvy yet. Don't really understand people like NYC, CNC and what he's doing there and why he has a camera and why he's asking questions. 
the smaller CNC uh, maker class machines, those guys all get it. They support me doing whatever I want to with these machines and sharing it good, bad, ugly. I don't want to say I abuse my machines, but I definitely push them. Uh, some of my projects probably well beyond what they were designed to do. Uh, and they've been nothing but like, hey, yeah, we love seeing that. Do some more of that. So it's none of this. Uh, yeah, don't call us. You did that. And we're not going to help you anymore. Ed really kind of personified that being here. It's quite an experience. Nice. Good to hear it. This one's ready for edit. <laughs> Heavy edit. What do you think, Winston? Should we make another one? I did definitely enjoy this conversation. I, I think we should. The The timing of this will probably be a little bit slow, our, our cadence, as we sort of ease into this. But I think in about two weeks, we might be ready to do this again. I'll be ready. Thank you, Winston. Thanks for your time, Eddie. Bye. Good night.